Hi everyone, I'm Tom Miller, editor of SolarView Magazine and marketing director here at Baywa RE Solar Systems. And today we're doing a follow-up to our last town hall, which we called the mind of the solar consumer. I think that's what we called it. And in that town hall, we brought on a number of folks from both inside and outside the solar industry to, to talk about how consumers make buying decisions. Um, when are they making rational decisions versus emotional ones? And folks can go back to it in our podcast feed and listen to that last town hall or check out the video online. But today I asked two of our guests to come on the podcast so I could uh, follow up with them on some of the outstanding audience questions we received and, and dig in a little more to some of the, the sales, marketing, and honestly, like where the industry is heading questions uh, that might interest and benefit our solar contractor audiences. So I'd like to introduce our guest today. We have Kelsey Ruger. Kelsey is a product and user experience executive at Hello Alice. He's bringing a valuable perspective from outside the solar industry a bit in terms of, you know, he, his work is harnessing design and technology to help develop innovative products. Uh, welcome, Kelsey. Thanks for coming back to chat with us. Thanks again for having me. Yeah. And there's a high bar set for you today. We decided that you need to answer all of these questions perfectly uh, for the audience. Are you up to the task? I'm up to the task. I was just waiting for the, the game show music to pipe in there. <laughs> yeah, I'll lay that over later. And we, we also have Scott Wynn. Scott's uh, become a regular guest on our town halls and podcasts. Scott is the CEO of 17 Terawatts, uh, and they make solar software, uh, a product called Bodhi. And Scott is also a fellow at the UT Austin Energy Institute. Scott's bringing the solar software and user experience perspective to the conversation today. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for joining yeah. us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. So we got a lot of audience questions. And the first one I'd like to start out with uh, was from an audience member, and it actually came during our town hall. So this came in through the chat, and I'll read it verbatim. I sense a lot of buzzwords here. I do not think the right thing is for the solar industry to open themselves up to being pervaded with Silicon Valley type buzzwords and terms of art. I think solar is a far more basic construction project than this discussion implies. To state as a question, do you think going solar is primarily a construction project? So there's a lot to unpack there. And, you know, I'm not casting shade on the, on the question at all. I think it's a legitimate one. Kelsey, why don't you kick us off? What, what's your reaction uh, to that statement? Well, I, I think it's the perfect question to start with, right? Because mm -hmm. I think people often will craft questions they ask or statements they make, and they, in their head, think it's perfectly, perfectly rational. Like they've removed all of the, in this case, the buzzwords or the definitions, but the, the funny thing is like nothing that we discussed during the town hall was a buzzword. It, it's all scientifically backed, right? Like there's research that people have either done in psychology or economics that teach us, you know, human beings will tend to think they're being rational when actually there's some irrationality or emotion that came before they made that decision. And now what they're doing is kind of stacking uh, the reasons that that emotional decision or irrational decision made sense. And so I think while you might look at solar as construction, I think at the end of the day, regardless of the type of decision, um, we do have to be aware that humans do stack some emotion and irrational um, decision-making when, whenever they're doing that. Mm -hmm. Scott, what's, what's your reaction to that? I, my reaction is that yes, solar can be considered a construction project, 
especially from a, a contractor or an installer's perspective. But the key thing here is what does the customer, um, how does the customer view it? What is his or her perspective when they go solar? And it's really not a construction project for them. There is this magic, there is this part of solar, going solar. That's why we even use the phrase going solar. It's more than just a construction project because what the customers are looking for is that experience. And I'll just take, you know, we can talk about an example um, that is a little bit uh, uh, similar to solar. Like let's take, for example, the construction or the renovation of a home. That is a construction project. But from a customer's perspective, they're not thinking of it as a cust- as a construction project, laying one stud here, one stud there. They're, when, the, when the project is being executed, they're imagining what their life will be like in that home. The decisions that they make will, is based on the experience that they, they are envisioning in their heads of how that will be. And so I'd say that to view the solar project as a construction project, is very me-centered and not really getting into the, the minds of the actual solar customers themselves. Mm-hmm. Kelsey, you agree with that? Yeah, I definitely agree. I think, and I don't know that this is industry specific. I think lots of companies do this is they tend to think of value in terms of what they believe is valuable to the customer and not what the customer is actually making that decision on, right? And so, Customers have a completely different view of what's valuable than the company does. And usually it is very me-centric for the company because it, it works out in their favor versus really thinking of what a consumer might be looking for. Mm. So it's really up to the consumer about whether or not it's a construction project. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we have a question on education from an audience member. Uh, and, the, and the question goes like this. It's been my experience that ongoing training and education is critically important to maintaining and expanding a customer base that results in referrals and growing business. Is this really focused on in the solar industry? And if not, why? Scott, maybe you can kick us off with this one. What's the role of education in the solar industry? Are we on par with other industries? Do you know? Do you know? Is this something we have to work on? And is it even necessary? No, I think it is really, it's important. And I think solar is still relatively new to the, as a consumer product. It it gets talked about in the, in the news a lot, but for the consumer, it is considered a new product. And I think the part of it where the education is really key is getting to the familiarity that it is a a product that they can easily adopt. Um, And it's kind of at that beginning of the funnel that is very different than let's say other, other products. So for example, Let's take an, a, an electric vehicle, um, for example. Electric vehicles are notionally a new product. However, consumers are actually quite well aware of what a vehicle is supposed to do, a car is supposed to do. And so that education of understanding like a car, okay, I'm just simply now powering it off of electricity. So the amount of education that's necessary to go from, okay, I know about a car, I can make a purchasing decision. I just have to know a little bit more about this electric part of that. And that's where the education part is is key. I think in solar, you need the entire set of education for people to understand by putting something on my roof, it is now going to help power my house. But I don't, I barely even have any experience with powering my house already because all I do is pay electricity bill. This is going to be quite different in that sense. And so I think 
education is still a pretty far ways to go to get people down into that funnel. I'd say one of the other ways, though, that's interesting is that one can actually short circuit that path down that that customer journey by the fact that uh, by referrals, by peers recommending that them that they this is something that they should do, so that the education part can be not necessarily ignored, but can be just one of the things that happens alongside the the fact that um, a friend or a neighbor has said yes, it works, I've got it. And um, you should do it too. Mm-hmm. Kelsey, what are your thoughts on education, especially around things that are so complex like solar and vast changing? Well, I'm typically a fan of educating people both through the sales process and the ongoing process. I think it's probably a little bit different in the solar industry than what we deal with because we educate partially for acquisition upfront, but we also educate for retention on the back end, since we're usually dealing with some type of a, a SaaS product that you want to keep people in. I think from a, from a solar perspective, uh, it's going to be more front loaded, right? Like you're going to want to make sure they understand going in, here's what, what I get out of this and here's what it means to me. Mm-hmm. Scott, what are your comments on that? Because uh, you deal with kind of ongoing education yourself. No, and I think it's important because there's quite a bit of information that needs to be explained up front so that they understand the the value that they're going to get. However, the engagement post-install is actually very, very important in turning that one customer into a, a loyal customer, which means that there's opportunities for upsells and cross-sells down the road, but then also turning those folks into cheerleaders or champions or advocates and that those are the ones that are going to provide those referrals um, to their customers. And so if you don't focus on that longer term, same type of retention that Kelsey was mentioning, then you lose out in building out that, that extra marketing, essentially marketing channel that's kind of built into the customer relationship. Mm-hmm. Kelsey, what are your thoughts there on, on timescale and education? When you say timescale, you mean just from beginning to end or just throughout the life cycle of that customer? Yeah. Well, what Scott's laying out is um, there's the initial opportunity for the solar contractor to put a solar install in somebody's home, but there are lots of follow-up opportunities to to sell other products. Like maybe they're going to add storage later, or maybe they want to be able to plug in an EV a couple of years from now. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. If there's lots of things that you want to sell after the fact or that you think someone may need later. Mm-hmm. And I would definitely urge people not to just push at people. Like it has to be like true education that people find valuable. I think a lot of companies end up, they end up confusing marketing content with educational content. And consumers are really savvy now and they can tell the difference. And so it's it's it has to be, really well packaged an example i would give you mm-hmm, um, please. there there's a company named vimeo does it i know there's a couple of other video companies that do it the, their service is video like doing video hosting but all of their educational content is on how to make use of video for your business and how to make sure you're doing the right things and i think there's probably a lot of opportunity in the solar industry to do the same thing where the business is solar like what are the ancillary things that go around it that consumers would benefit from that would help you with your upsell later on in the process you walk them through a legitimate guide on 
how to find, evaluate, and purchase an, an electric vehicle. Like it's a real guide that they could use, even mm-hmm. if they weren't your customer. That's what draws people in. And I always tell people uh, when they ask me about like, don't be afraid to give away a lot of good information for free because it has benefits down the, down the line. I think it's very true. And I think one of the key things, like for example, a lot of, so Tesla has a power wall that, you are, that, you, that a consumer can, can purchase. Um, they could either go to Tesla and try to do that or mo- many times the other ins- con- solar contractors are the ones installing Tesla Powerwalls too. And so if there isn't that relationship established long-term, then if once a person hears about batteries or a Powerwall, they're going to be the ones probably reaching out to Tesla, who then will probably reach back out to the same solar company that they did. And so the possibility is if the company has established that relationship by providing them content, by checking in, then they could be the one who first receives that initial phone call from their customers. And they're the trusted advisor on saying, is this Powerwall or is or any other battery storage systems a better option for that specific customer? And then second, I think the key thing, kind of example of what Kelsey said, it was like, those guides are great. I think the one thing that they can do further is to personalize a lot of that information. So it could be that not only is what your customer, here's a guide to selecting and choosing a electric vehicle, but because of the way that your electricity use plus your system size, this is, if we have that extra information, this is how you can personally benefit from that. So that is something that can, that, that extra layer of personalization can go pretty far in helping nudge that customer towards those other options. I mean, those extra products and services. Mm -hmm. Great points. Um, Let's move on to a specific solar sales question that we got. And um, they say, Hey, I am from solar sales. Probably Kelsey can answer my question the best. How can we come in with the most simple, easy way to a new customer? What in solar sales might cause some confusion in the customer's mind? So again, solar is complex. Uh, There's a lot of parts to it. Kelsey, what do you think about that initial conversation with a consumer? How would you approach answering this question? Um, What's really interesting when I hear these, these questions from people in the solar industry is it's not the only complex product that gets sold around, right? Like there's lots of complex products And I think the way most people have tackled this is they use either solution-based selling where you come into that situation not having decided what that person needs, but you're going to base it on sort of those introductory conversations with the person. And it may take a little bit more time, but you may make a more valuable sale over the long haul. And I think rather than just focusing on simplifying the sale, I would simplify the interaction, right? And so I start, if I'm going into a sales situation now with a complex product, I don't assume anything about what they understand, what their their mindset about it's going to be. I figure that out during the first meeting so that I can craft uh, what I'm going to do as a follow-up. The thing that I think we have in our industry that I don't know that it is available as much in the solar industry as we have lots of data about people before we go into a sales situation. Usually like we have demographic data, we might know their position in the company. And I think we can use that information to start the conversation. But whenever I'm going in with the complex product, I don't try to simplify the product. I simplify the interaction, if that makes sense, to make sure I'm asking the right questions for that person in particular, because you could take 
a VP at two different companies, and depending on their role in the company, their background, their experience, they may have a totally different perception of solar as a product than the other person. You can't necessarily just say, VPs, we pitch them this way. Mm-hmm. Scott, any, any thoughts on that? No, I think it's really relevant because for the customer, solar is either going to be their second or, or third most expensive product that they're going to purchase in their life mm-hmm. after their, their house or their car, so, um, depending upon the car. And so for that customer, it is a big purchase. And so when you think about selling deals to, you know, there's small deals and then there's large deals. Large deals really take time. And very much like Kelsey said, the beginning of the sales process is crucial to understand. There's a, I mean, it, when someone does sales in other industries, we we go through, and especially the more complicated, um, the larger scale deals and more complicated deals, there's always a customer discovery session at the very beginning, just to understand what do what are they looking for? And I think there there's no way to craft a single one sales process that necessary that will that they can productize in in a way. But I think if you start off, if the sales folks starts off with a very open-ended, very listening, empathetic initial meeting, they can start to uncover where that person is in their customer journey, what type of information they know, what motivates them. And then from there, be able to, like Kelsey said, come in in a second meeting and address those specific concerns or those specific motivations that were identified in the first one. Mm-hmm. I, I want to jump into maybe it's a it's a bit of a political question, but it touches on some of the behavioral psychology that we talked about in our last town hall, uh, and I'm sure Kelsey has thoughts on this. But it gets to the heart of how you sell energy in a landscape that might have negative impressions on it. So you're entering into a market, and that market might not have a, the, a favorable impression of solar. And the question is, how will the conversation or education process in an oil state like Louisiana? different from greener states where there is uh, where there is no stigma. Kelsey, is this like trying to sell a Ford to a Chevy family or is it more akin to trying to get a Democrat to vote Republican? We live in partisan times, so I'm assuming in this question, the consumer's negative imp- uh, perceptions of solar weighs heavily in the conversation. Uh, what are your thoughts? Honestly, I think we could have an entire podcast just breaking this question down. Mm-hmm. I think the, the first thought I have is just based on observation, most people don't do their own research. They're depending on someone else to tell them what to think about a particular topic. So while it might be hard, I think there's still opportunity if you think that maybe what people really know about your product is lacking, right? Like some people have made a decision, again, based on Uh, a political stance, or maybe someone else that they respect told them that this is a bad choice. Uh, And that appeal to authority, it's a big one. Like the people will, will buy opinions from authority figures, even if that authority figure has absolutely no experience in that area. And so uh, when you're going into a situation like that, and you're selling a product, again, this is not, I don't think this is new, like it's happened for a long time where people had to go into that situation. I think you need to understand the environment you're going into and you need to be prepared for the objections. I would, I would hope that you have your, your market kind of segmented so you know 
where the low hanging fruit is versus the the hard nuts because you may want to I mean I always tell this is any sales process right like you have a bunch of different open loops right like you and maybe that hard nut is going to take you a year to sell where you've got some low hanging fruit where they're more open and receptive to the message mm-hmm. Scott what are your thoughts on that w- would you would you open addressing the elephant in the room in Louisiana you know? Sure. I think Louisiana, I mean, it's a, I would say two, two things specifically to that question. So we did our own survey, but then others, uh, it's, it, it was similar to others, other surveys and research done. 80% of folks in America have a positive view of solar. And that's across the, um, both Republicans and Democrats. And so the general population does have a very positive image of solar. So I think that is a, a good first base for everything. And then what's been interesting is, you know, states like Louisiana, other companies, other solar companies like Posigen, for example, they've actually done very well in Louisiana. Um, other countries, other companies are doing great in Texas, not just in the liberal part of Austin where I live in, but all across the state. And so I think when you have the base of most people have a positive view of solar and then going from there, diving into the actual motivations from that we're talking about, and then being able to, to get the low hanging fruit of folks that are willing. Because like we said, once you can get a few folks to gar- start going solar, that's a seed to getting more more people. And then those folks become the authority or this to, like um, Kelsey said, for hit their friends and neighbors to, be, to also go solar. So I think conventional wisdom, or at least first thought, may think that it's difficult for communities that are oil or um, fossil fuel based uh, kind of uh, backgrounds and history to not want to adopt solar. But I think in practice, that has not been as much of a barrier as you might have first thought. Kelsey, um, let's talk a little bit about expensive products versus cheaper products. Are there lessons out there, you know, and what level should we be thinking about? Scott mentioned this is going to be a solar system is going to be maybe the second or third most expensive purchase that a home might, you know, choose to invest in. Is there something inherently different about solar because it can create returns on investment? Any thoughts on this uh, expensive versus, you know, cheaper product? So the way I would first answer that question is I think we have to dispel the myth that people make decisions on things based on cost all the time. Like, in fact, you could take two things that are of equal value. And in one case, they will think, man, that's so expensive. And then in another case, they're very willing to spend that money. I think whenever I I, I hear people say, Uh, expensive versus cheap. I point them to an example we learned many years ago, I was running a a web development company. And we thought, man, small businesses really want uh, their websites to be cheap. So we started the product at $99. But what we found is every single time we raised the price, sales went up. And we, after we asked people, it was because they perceived the low cost website to be of low value. They thought there's no way I can get a good website for $99. So as we raise the price, the perception of the value went up. And so I think in a, in a microcosm, you gotta figure out how people are valuing the product. It's not about the cost because we see it all over. 
people will spend money on things that they find valuable, but they won't spend money on things that they don't find valuable that even may be cheaper. And so I think if I were giving anyone advice in the solar industry is find a good way to make sure people are buying the value, not buying the product cost or price. Does that make sense? If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, we see oftentimes homeowners are quite willing to pay for LG panels. Um, they're a little more expensive, but they come with great warranties. You know, there's a lot, the company that backing it up, you know, is great brand recognition. Scott, any any thoughts on that? Cheaper versus, uh, yeah, more expensive and how people yeah. react to that? I think it's actually really interesting. So um, similarly, there was a really good study where it was a test, a behavioral um, economics mm -hmm. research that said they basically gave two groups a placebo. One was a, a low-cost fake pill placebo, and one was a high-priced fake placebo. And what happened was the high-cost placebo actually made people feel better than the low cost one. And so I think that understanding of, of pricing and cost is like Kelsey said, not the primary driver. What I think a tactic that companies can consider though, is that many times they're just kind of selling the same product to their customers. And then they may they vary it here or there based on, um, but it could, one tactic that could be useful is to provide two different options. One is a, a value option and one which would be a premium option. And by doing that, they have the potential for identifying what's motivating that customer to give them, offer them the right option. And then two, because the higher price, the premium options are going to have higher margins, there will be definitely be folks who are looking for that option. And so I think that's a, an opportunity. So like, for example, my my neighbor behind me saw that I was going solar for a few years ago. And then he's like, Scott, I want to go do it too. So I referred him to the solar company we were using. And then when he got his proposal, I was like, yeah, send it over. I'll take a look. And what I saw was he got the premium ones, the LG uh, panels that, that you had. Mm -hmm. And I told him, well, can't, could maybe you can consider these other ones, which have a better ROI, for example. And in the end, he's like, no, I want the higher quality one. Mm -hmm. And that's just because of the, that's the mentality that that customer had. And so I think, I think one mistake is to always assume that ROI is going to drive a customer's decision. And I think what we found very clearly is that in our user studies, that maybe ROI might be one of the factors that go into a decision during the purchasing part. Once a system's installed, if it's an ROI of, you know, of, 14.2% versus 12%, right. customers are not going to, uh, it's not going to make any difference in how they perceive um, the value that they're actually getting. Mm -hmm. There's something you said there as well that I want to dig into. You said two options, value versus you know premium. Uh, Kelsey, one thing we found when working with solar contractors is like a limited line card, a limited number of offerings often makes sales much easier on the company. How do you think about that? Is Scott's suggestion of premium or value good, one or the other? Should you have three? You know, how limited do you want to you make your offerings? It kind of goes back to that simplification of solar. The, I think, and your listeners may not like my answer, but I think this goes back to something Scott and I have touched on a couple of times. I think you need as many options as work for that particular customer. Hmm. And 
uh, I'm going to give you guys two examples. One is a real world example that I've used myself. When, when I was in college, I waited tables. And one of the first things they taught you about how to sell alcohol when you were waiting tables was someone orders a margarita. You don't just give them the margarita. You explain the difference between house tequila and premium tequila. And you, so you get a sense of what that customer wants because they may be willing to spend $12 on a bottle of premium tequila, but they don't know that until you explain it to them. Um, the other example I would give you is sort of the trend right now of TV companies selling 8K televisions, right? Like that purchase right. makes absolutely no sense with the available content. Like you can't even get 4K content, right? but they know that some people out there value the prestige of having that 8K TV and the cost doesn't matter. And so I think if I'm making a, a list of, some, of prices for something like solar, I might have a whole gambit or a whole list of pricing models, but I might not present them all to every customer. I'm going to present them based on um, me knowing some things about what that customer's appetite is. Scott, what's the offering that makes absolutely no sense, but you can charge a lot for in the solar industry, like the 8K TV? Oh, man, I got to think about that. I know. I'm not going to ask yeah. you to really answer that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's let's talk a little bit. Uh, we have a few minutes left, and there and there are two more questions. But one is, um, it's about uh, incentive programs. Uh, Kelsey, you know, solar is driven by a lot of incentives. Uh, some states have incentive programs that can really uh, drive sales for our customers uh, for the solar installers. When incentives hit uh, and the there's fast movement in a market. Uh, what does that do to the consumer psychology? Um, is it prudent in these cases to push consumers a little bit to convince them of the benefit, you know, before it goes away? Uh, you know, could there is mutual opportunity there? You know, how do consumers uh, respond to incentive programs like this, whether whether it's just uh, an item on sale or, or whether it's a tax benefit? One thing I will tell you that consumers respond to quite irrationally, even if it doesn't always make sense, is free. Like anytime you, th you throw the word free anything in there, you shift consumer psychology. And so if the incentive is no payments for a year or free installation, you, you have to kind of gauge which one of the incentives is going to be best in that particular market and what, you're trying, what your end goal is. So for me, if I'm setting up an incentive-based campaign, I'm looking at is my goal to get acquisition to a certain level in a certain time frame? Is my goal to uh, acquire a certain type of customer that I think has longer term value to the company? That's sort of what I would start looking at is with each segment. And this is something we do all the time. Like we might have, you know, 40 different segments and they all have different incentives because we know that they're going to react differently um, to each one of those. Mm. And the other thing I would add on to that is, people are disproportionately reactive to loss aversion. And I know you guys have heard this, but anytime you can eliminate that, it makes the sale easier. Like if they feel like the gain is more valuable than the loss, then you're, you're in a winning position. Mm -hmm. So the example is, if you don't act on this incentive program before the end of the year, you're going to lose out on this opportunity. Right. Yeah. Scott, any, any, any thought on that, especially in terms of solar industry and its reactivity to incentives? No, I think that's very true. And so you can actually see this. I think um, 
Varun Rai, the uh, professor Varun Rai mm -hmm. that was on the solar panel, he's actually studied this. So that that loss aversion, because with the incentives, like when the incentive programs, either local or national, are either being are going away, that sets a deadline. And then educated cust, um, consumers are actually being pushed up against that deadline. And so that actually leads to um, an increased sales over that more limited period. So the loss of the effect of loss aversion is very, very real. And I think that plays for also why there's always an end of year rush to always get that tax credit. It's Q4 is the busiest time of year for almost all, all um, solar companies. And that's because everyone's pushing them to make sure that they can get that tax credit. Um, in this year, so they can apply it for that their tax returns right after mm -hmm. um, the turn of the. I, I want to start to wrap up here and maybe maybe come back to where we started. At least that that's how it seemed when I when I laid out my questions here. And I should say that I'm thinking here in response to the initial question that I do think the solar industry has moved beyond it just being a construction business. Maybe there's ways that you can parcel those out, but for a lot of our contractor partners, they're doing all all of the things that need to be done to get in solar. Uh, installs on roofs or marketing uh, outreach, you know, the installation, working with permitting, you know, it's, it's a complex business. So Kelsey, you know, Apple does have a single product, for example, my laptop, you know, but it's also tied to a network of apps, TV, music, basically everything, right? Is there a corollary to the solar industry here? And what does it say about selling this complex product that we have, this solar installation, you know, that involves panels, construction, permitting, storage, interconnection, potential return on investment for homeowners. How do you think about this, you know, and how do we get it to the point where it's so streamlined uh, with all of these different stakeholders? Is it possible? What are we going to do? How do we move forward? Uh, you know, I'm going to borrow part of what Scott said earlier about sort of the long-term value of a customer. And I think the sooner that people in the solar industry realize that they're in, they're competing in the same marketplace as Apple and BMW and all the premium brands that understand that BMW is not just selling a car. Apple is not just selling a phone and they understand how people are making product decisions and it goes beyond sort of utility, right? And so once you understand that you're in a marketplace and there's a great book I, I'll point you guys to by a guy named Clay Shrieky and he it's, he, it's called Here Comes Everyone. And he talks about that since the 1950s after the war, um, the Second World War ended, we've had this growing gap where people have expendable income, right? And like people don't always make choices with their extra income that are utilitarian, right? Like they're making choices that are lifestyle. They are making choices that are, are sort of positional or prestige based. And I don't think that solar is different, right? Like I think you're playing in the same marketplace. You're going to have some people that make very utilitarian based choices and other people who are making choices based on lifestyle. And the, I think you got to sort of pray to position your product that way, depending on the user that you're talking to or the customer that you're talking to. Scott, how do we get to the point where we're selling a streamlined solar system, uh, or that at least we're demonstrating to the to the consumer that they should feel comfortable even with this really complex uh, interaction or product? Yeah, so I think it's somewhat separate that are interrelated. I think what they should be focused on the sale, they should be focusing on selling the experience. The folks that are buying solar, they're buying 
a state-of-the-art technology. They're buying into the new energy transformation. So that's from their perspective, that's what they're get, that's what they're purchasing. And so the sales should speak to that. It's then the companies or then the operations teams that then needs to be able to handle the actual very complicated nature of doing the, an actual solar installation um, process. And the key tie in between the two of those is to first set those expectations up front that well so the customers understand like, hey, you're going to have the state of the art technology. You're buying into the solar experience, this next energy transition, but it's going to take these many steps and we are going to do a great job and we're going to keep you up to date throughout the entire process so that you know exactly what's going to happen and that the investment that you're making is a good investment so that when we actually power it on, you will start to, to experience that all those values that we are trying to sell you on. So I, th- I think the approach needs to be taken in kind of those two separate ways there. Mm-hmm. I, I want to wrap up here. Either of you have any recommendations of things you're reading um, that relate to, you know, the conversations we're having today? Kelsey, you already referenced one book. Do you have any others? Other than, you know, um, Dan Ariely, those are books that everyone knows. I think one that I talk about a lot is a book called Animal Spirits. It's Animal Spirits, How Human Psychology Drives the Economy. I think if you're in business today and you're not at least at a high level engaged with understanding that traditional economics depends heavily on rationality, but it completely ignores emotion, irrationality, and psychology. Like those things at a high level engage with understanding that traditional economics depends heavily on rationality, but it completely ignores emotion, irrationality, and psychology. Like those things all play a part, whether we like like to say it or not, even the most rational person or in their mind, they're rational is those things play a part in their decision-making process, even if they don't see it. And so understanding that from a business perspective is, is really important. I think that book's a great one. So yeah, there's a book that was recommended to, to me and it's more towards user experience in designing web apps and such. It's called Don't Make Me Think. And it's practical things about how to design web so that you get the best user experience. I think this could be applicable to those in the solar industry by one, I mean, very practically, can they make their website as easy to understand as possible? Because mm-hmm. that is one of the main channels in which the customers are going to find information and then be able to lead towards a, a sale or at least an initial meeting. So, but then second, that entire idea, don't make me think, that is how do you actually do that in throughout the sales process and if you can actually crack that code then that's um yeah that's going to be you're going to be a winner yeah so if listeners can crack that code let let us know Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today. Kelsey Ruger is a product and user experience executive at Hello Alice, and Scott Wynn, a regular on the show at this point, a CEO of 17 Terawatts. Thank you both for being here, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>